Hey. Hi. What's up? Hello. We are here. This is Ergo. This is indeed Ergo. I am Damon. And I am Kiss. And what we do here is showcase the people who are reshaping our city and the world for the more equitable and creative. And we accomplished that today. I think so. We're, we're well on our way. Both hardcore equity, hardcore creativity. It was happening. Hardcore humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm... I'm in a, a type of love. A right tizzy. Now. Yes, yes. Shout out so much to our fantastic guest, Tanika Lewis Johnson. She is the creator of the Folded Map Project. She's an organizer and photographer and visual artist who has been doing incredible work. I just can't believe we didn't sit down earlier. Yeah. Here's here's an adjective for you. What do you got? Enchanting. You're enchanted? I'm I've I've been enchanted. Well, I hope that is it you... an adjective? Did I make that up? No, that's an adjective. Okay, all right, cool. It's also a verb in that, stay away from the camera. (laughs) We got too far. Truly a wonderful conversation with Tanika. If you don't know her work, maybe before you even listen, do a quick Google. It's worth seeing just the beautiful between Fold the Map, some of the other work that she's been doing, the installations, the portraiture, the photography she does of the city, and specifically her home neighborhood of Englewood. Definitely check out Rage, who does some really great work. Absolutely, Rage Englewood. And um, yeah, anything else you want to add about what the conversation covered? I think we, we, we had a really great dive of the impact of housing on a local level that I think allowed us to talk about the macro structure of land and shelter and the humanity of it. I think that's the beauty of Chicago is that it is so fucked up in certain ways that it becomes a lesson for the world, right? Yeah. So there's so much information of this does not make sense. And I think her work really did a great job of finding the humanity of inequity. Yeah, uh, and helping us figure out how to make sense and yeah. then move forward. From so, it. so going from the personal to be able to talk about the structural, uh, her work did that really well in this conversation, I think was really valuable. So you're going to learn, you're going to laugh, you're going to, you know, all the gems. Yeah, you might get enchanted. Let's uh, let's go get enchanted with Tanika Lewis-Johnson. I've gone through a divorce after 10 years of marriage, so mm. I have no problem. Oh, you, you've purged at a different level. Yeah, I, I don't, <laughs> if I feel like they got to go, I don't care how long I've known them. A divorce is the ultimate unfollow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I've, I've I, like... At one point, I liked him way more than I liked you. <laughs> exactly. I kick off cousins. <laughs> I don't... That's I don't... I don't play. <laughs> The divorce is the ultimate of yeah, once, once there's a divorce, nothing is precious after that. Nothing. Like, no. <laughs> mutual friends mean nothing. <laughs> yep. I followed him, too. He just got unblocked. <laughs> oh, my God. Man, there was, there was a time. Man, it was a specific line of bullshit. I don't know if it was cop bullshit. It was some type of bullshit that like was happening. It was like a moment. I can't remember which moment it was, but some bullshit Facebook moment. Uh-huh. And it was so relieving because I would not only unfollow the person, I would then unfollow all of our mutual friends. Mm. Um, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all all are catching yeah, this. There was yeah. like a litmus test. Yeah, it was something. Ah, I wish I could remember what it was because it might have been something really serious. It also could have been <laughs> equally as frivolous. I'm trying to get my yeah. stuff like y'all. And you want to be about a fist distance away from the mic. Blah. Okay. Yeah, that was that was an appropriately peaking. It's <laughs> 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 not overwhelming at all. No, no, that was okay. the right on time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, this is great. All right, shall we do the thing? Let's do it. We are here with a very special guest, yes. the brilliant artist, space maker, oh. and city thinker and seer. Ooh. 
Tanika Lewis Johnson is here. Thank you. Hello. I love the sound effects. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Someday we've, we've we'll worked get a hard at that. Yeah. I see. I see. <laughs> you know, they say like 10,000 hours. They're like, Malcolm, mm. I, we're like, I'd say like 7,342 hours worth of making noise. sound effects. No. Yeah. We're getting close. <laughs> Pay the dues. Mm-hmm. Do the work, people. <laughs> Do the work. <laughs> so let's start where, uh, where we like to always start. In this time, in this mm-hmm. moment, this season, defining time, however you would yeah. like to. How's the world treating you and how are you treating the world? I am, I think, treating the world good, but I'm just still stunned at the title that you gave me. Ooh. I loved it. City Thinker. Mm-hmm. I love that. What, what, I, what, I can what, tell you what that meant to me, but what did that, yeah, what did that elicit for you? It, did you make that up? Yeah. Oh, good job. It's, it's perfect. <laughs> because when I um, talk about my work, I'm always mentioning like the origin of my upbringing and everything. And so that title just like perfectly encapsulates all of that. Hmm. Yeah, City Thinker. Because most of my work is inspired by how I've lived in this city. Yeah. 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 And I can tell you just why it came to me in that way, just in the bits of your work that I do know that you have this like understanding of the micro and macro working together so well. Like you're able to show these individual portraits and these very kind of like personal snapshots of people and of mm-hmm. even geographically of corners of mm-hmm. s- streets and then also like connect that to the whole in a way that I think academics do a lot. Like if you're studying a yeah. city or city planners do, but as artists, I think it can be somewhat more challenging. Like people tend to either be like, I'm doing portraits of people or I'm doing landscape. Like even right. even like the language of photography or visual art is like you either doing a portrait Very or a limiting. landscape. Yeah. Very limiting. So yes. you being able to to put those together is just, you know, a little bit of gas up top. That's part of what I find so Thank like you. intriguing and beautiful about your work. Thank you. But but, let, but let's get to the important question. Yes. How's the world treating you? How are you treating the world? Um, the world is treating me great. I had some recent, you know, accomplishments, uh-huh, unexpected uh-huh. awards. Shout and out to accomplishments. Thank you. <laughs> Man, that's what's up. Reaching goals. Yeah. But yeah, I just feel like um, this is just like a space, a period, a little portal in my lifetime that I'm like walking through it and able to like execute uh, projects that I want to do and then have the connections with certain people to amplify it. So mm. I, I'm i feeling real good. And I think I'm treating the world very well, hmm. making them um, look at certain issues in a different way and, and, and using photography in a different way. Is there anything better than the feeling of having an idea and then being able to make that idea and have it actually be seen and engaged with? That's oh, kind of like the best thing in the world. It is. Yeah. I'm, Shout out to ideas. <laughs> <laughs> ideas, accomplishments. Yes, all the things, all the things. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's what's up, you know? Reaching goals, yeah. mm-hmm. having project ideas and enjoying the process not getting frustrated by the process letting it evolve into something that you didn't necessarily plan then it being better than what you planned and then having people respond to it like I'm addicted what's something that is a goal that has come together recently that was something that was like up on the board for a minute that now has come to fruition well just obviously was my folded map project like that 
had been I, I did the project just to get it out of my brain because I had been thinking about it since like my early 20s. Mm-hmm. So that's oh, my gosh, almost 20 years. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just a nagging thought ever since like it's evolved since high school. Yeah. And so. Once I started doing community work and just making these connections myself, and then, of course, 2016 happened. I was like, okay, this is the apex of everything. Like, I got to get it out of my head, and I don't know how people are going to receive it. Yeah. I'm going to just do it, and then for it to, like, resonate with so many people. Yeah. So. yeah it's a beautiful thing. 2016 was definitely an apex for me in a lot of spaces. Are you just talking mm-hmm. about the election or was there more things about that year specifically that that sticks out as so significant? Um the presidential election year mm-hmm. was like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it forced me to examine a lot of other stuff going on in my life mm-hmm. like my work my role as the artist, like if I was even going to call myself an artist, like all of that was kind of in response to what was going on in 2016. Did you have alternative language that you were working on? If you, if you weren't call yourself an artist, what other things would you use? I was just saying photographer. I didn't even claim any of those titles because even though I went to school to be like a trained photojournalist. I never used that term because of my conflicting issues with it. Hmm. So I was just like, I'm a photographer as a hobby, which right. I knew my skill level didn't match. I was hmm. like, it's beyond that. <laughs> but I didn't claim a title until hmm. 2016. And I was like, nah, you know, I didn't even use community activists. I was like, no, I'm just literally a concerned Inglewood resident. Right. I am doing community work because it's the neighborhood I live in. I want it to be better. And then later, my, like, fellow neighbors and community was just like, nah, you're an artist. Yeah, you're an artist. Say that. Say that, (laughs) girl. You're an artist. And I was like... I am. <laughs> it's a little bit easier when it comes from somebody else. It does. Yeah, yeah, you know, when, it's like a nickname. When they like knight you, like, yeah. yes, you are an artist. I think, uh, were, you, were you with me? I think this is my last birthday. We, we were outside a breathing room mm-hmm. and I was off shrooms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like 10 o'clock. It was a That's guy that kept. Yeah. I've done that in so long. Oh, yeah, it's been too long for me oh my as, gosh. as well. It was so, such a peaceful. Yeah, yeah. We had just finished up a mural, or we were finishing up a mural, and a guy rode his bike by like twice in like six minutes. And he's like, oh, yeah, y'all some artists over there. <laughs> <laughs> y'all real creative. And I was like, you know what? Yes, That's we so are. <laughs> that, that is exactly what we were I talking. feel so seen. <laughs> we are some artists. We were, we were, we were oh, open for yeah. So you were saying as you were <laughs> struggling towards the title of artist, you, you were studying photojournalism. Uh, but that 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 language or that feel felt weighted or yeah you started to talk about something like uh, some yes. concerns with that umbrella and we love yeah. to talk about that because we lampoon journalism pretty oftenly and probably without merit like we probably are the ones <laughs> who should be the, the, no. the leading critics of journalism. But yeah, what was it for you? Journalism um, as an industry, it's just. Even as a business, it's under fire, you know? And so I roll with people that criticize it, like City Bureau. That's -hmm. that's my people's. But yeah, no. So when I went to Columbia College and Ah. yeah, and like this is this this is in the nineties, ninety-seven to two thousand three, you know, it wasn't as evolved so far as the 
offerings that they had for photography. Mm -hmm. Photography is one of those mediums that just was on the, like, it's like a bald-headed stepchild of the art world. (laughs) It was very late to being recognized as, like, art outside of abstract, right? Abstract photography. My heart is just going out for all of the children of divorce. (laughs) (laughs) Just out here. I feel like that's a fun. We need to start. I know. (laughs) Probably should have said that. We're going to host a telethon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's funny. (laughs) It was in the family. It was just, you know. Uh, (laughs) They weren't disowned. Right. We're just just... checking our own bigotry. We haven't got to that one yet. No, that's a new one. <laughs> one, one step at a time. It's only one step child at a time. <laughs> this is terrible. Thank you for recognizing that there. Yep. It was like if you're interested in street photography, you were automatically like geared towards being, oh, photojournalist. Of course. Yeah, duh. Right. You're not <laughs> this because what you are photographing, you know, is not art. You know, mm, um, it's news. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's documentation and it's news. And so when I was studying photojournalism during that time, I also started doing an internship at the Chicago Reporter. And so that just opened my eyes to just Chicago's media landscape. And then I realized, like, wow, if I want to be a freelance photojournalist, I'm going to have to photograph literally the neighborhood I came from in the exact way that I don't want to do right. like the opposite mm. of what I've been doing hmm. and so that was one critical moment for me where I was like nah I, I can't I that, don't want to do that that's really interesting can we name that of like what you were doing and were aspiring to doing and what was prescribed in that yeah. field like, what, what is the distance between those two I loved street photography and I particularly loved photographing um, not only my community black people black neighborhoods um, that I've visited felt welcome in which you know coincidentally were all of the neighborhoods that get talked about in the news <laughs> right. negatively I photographed those neighborhoods like like they're my family, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. like I view them as art. And so to know you're going to enter a profession that is actually documenting these communities in a very one-dimensional, damage-scented way, mm. it just... Conf- it, yeah, it just conflicted with all of my values, right. not only artistically, but the fact that I'm from one of these neighborhoods. Like, nah, I'm not, I don't want to contribute to that so I was just like I can't stomach that I'm not going to talk to people and photograph them you know when they after the police are called yeah after they've experienced the trauma of gun violence Mm -hmm. and and not enter my own community to document all of the other beautiful things in abundance that's going on so I just was like I don't think I want to be a photojournalist yeah (laughs) it's interesting with with photography here's so much about negative space and like that's what those photographs are being asked to show right is like the lack mm-hmm. it's like all the things that aren't there yeah and it sounds like your goal was like let me show the things that are there and the people who are there and the things that they are doing well yeah and then not even to just show quote unquote the opposite but just the right. truth yeah. like exactly. what you are actually you know reporting on is such a small percentage of what of the hours of a week uh, that yeah. exists in a neighborhood like it's it's propaganda it's mm-hmm. really what it is and so um, I was just like, nah, I'm not going to do that. I guess it'll just be a hobby. Mm-hmm. And so from 2003, that's what it was. Hmm. What do you think was opened up in your craft 
by viewing it as a hobby that then when you'd made that decision to be like, oh, this is what I am. I'm an artist. Yeah. You, if you had been trying to do that the whole time, you maybe wouldn't have built as a skill or as a just right. way of understanding your work. I wasn't photographing events or people uh, for an assignment. Right. I was literally following just what I wanted to do. So my friends who were doing music, um, I photographed them where I, like I said, where I was hanging out, where I live, I was photographing that. I had so much agency over my own work or the the library of images that I was collecting. Yeah. And I didn't have to, like, answer to nobody. I just was like, this is what I want to photograph. Yeah. And so as a result of building that library of work, I realized, oh, wow. Like, I have a lot of images of neighborhoods that, unfortunately— aren't getting documented. Um, and then in the middle of like the 2000s, photography, photojournalism was taking a huge shift because all of the major media outlets started laying off their mm -hmm. photography staff. Mm -hmm. And that was huge in the photojournalist world because I realized then like it's going to be a huge gap of the images that are going to be taken because photojournalists historically what they would do after they you know shoot for an assignment all the great ones especially some of my mentors Ovi Carter John White like they would even Gordon Parks they would stay in those neighborhoods and photograph them mm -hmm. and so a lot of their images became the historical like reference point for mm -hmm. anything that, that we want to talk about you know their images are usually what people are going to see in a documentary hmm. and so if you don't have staff photojournalists mm -hmm. where are we going to get documentation of neighbor yeah, yeah where are we going to get that from and so that's when in the middle of the 2000s i was like oh my gosh if i were to google inglewood which i did inglewood right now like no images would come up from the 90s you know, just like mm. every day, <laughs> it was nothing. Mm. And so it was at that point that I was like, oh, no, I have to this. I have to do this with intention and try to get as many photographers who are from Chicago, interested in Chicago, to realize this urgency. Like, we're not going to have <laughs> documentation right. of not only our city, but communities of color if we don't realize that freelance journalists will only be like photographing Chicago yeah, from right. this point forward. And yeah. they only want to photograph for their assignment. Mm -hmm. So caution yeah. tape in abandoned houses. Yeah. That's really powerful. It, it's it's really kindred actually to like our mission here of like understanding the historical significance of the present. Mm -hmm. uh, and like recognizing the lack or the absence or some of the the void or gap of kind of the, the, the generation mm -hmm. that got us to this place. Yes. Uh, and so, like, what I'm hearing is the importance of primary sources. Right? Yes. Like, the, the photograph has been such a historically yeah. significant primary source to tell the narrative of how our world is shaped. Yes. Uh, and, and the absence of perspective and the hmm. subjectivity of it, right? It's very similar to what we're trying to do here through conversation. Uh, yeah. Create a, create a living archive of the history of, of what is happening. Exactly. And just the power of imagery. Like, photography historically has been used to not only, you know, as propaganda, but also specifically with Black people in America. We've constantly used that to counter narratives about us that weren't ours for right. for since it was invented and so i just wanted to bring back that urgency like we still have to do that 
sadly, unfortunately. Did, did y'all know that Frederick Douglass was one yes. of the first? You did know, okay. Yes. He's one of the first. I, yeah. I told you this already? Or yeah, you knew but you should finish the sentence for those for people who don't know. For you guys who are not in the room who don't know, <laughs> Frederick Douglass is one of the first like American photographers, Yeah, basically. And like the reason why we, he's not why, but a part of why he's so significant in our historical imagination is he so intentionally took so many pictures of himself. Basically, all of those pictures we know of Frederick Douglass yeah. are more or less like selfies, like the first selfie. <laughs> yeah. And he was like very intentional about his hair. It was like a political yeah. statement. Yes. And so he was like getting his hair did and like taking selfies exactly. and like documenting himself. Some photo shoots. <laughs> he is the most photographed American ever. Mm. Yeah. Because he started having his portraits taken very early mm-hmm. in his life. He had been bl- killing so, the gram. Man. <laughs> man, Freddie D on real. the gram? Oh, man. oh, my God. He would have, what? So many followers, just, sponsors. Just gym selfies. Freddie man. D free. I feel right. like that would have been his, <laughs> been his name. <laughs> free he from was, oh my God. <laughs> he said Frederick would have been killing the gram. Oh, yeah, but he had so the funny. foresight uh-huh. to understand the power of imagery and the use of it and the like the power of persuasion right a suggestion even that was kind of recalled when I heard that you know media outlets were <laughs> like laying off their staff photographers I was like wow that really changed the incentive for you, a photographer and you marked that around like 2008 yes it's funny, I joked about it, but that is kind of around the time or right before Instagram mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah, Twitter would pop up. Well, that was part of it. I would guess why the, like it was justified. It was like, well, we're going to be able to get all these photos, mm-hmm. at least if you're doing it digital. Like, you can't always print an Instagram photo. Exactly. But for digitally, you have access to it all. Yeah. So you mentioned some people whose like lineage you see yourself in. Yeah. Are there other moments historically or other places that you weren't alive in that you've relied on photography to help understand? Mm. Oh, gosh. Civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, most recently, I met a photographer. and he, I, I hate I can't remember his name. I'm going to have to look it up because it's going to kill me. Anyway, he's he's a really amazing photographer, and he was um, a housing activist during the civil rights movement. <laughs> and it's killing me. I can't remember his name. Anyway, he had photographs of Dr. Martin Luther King when he was in Chicago, and in color. And he was photographing hmm. in color at a time where the civil rights movement was only photographed in black and white. Hmm. And so just seeing his photos of Dr. Martin Luther King in front of City Hall in color mm-hmm. yeah. and seeing the protesters in color, it just it made me realize not only how far we've come, but, you know, how how much further we have to go because it felt like the present. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and that that's, black and white thing makes it, it feel like, you know, the, the deep, like from the recesses. Exactly. Of, yeah. Exactly. It's so even just color can impact your connection with mm-hmm. a, a time period, a photograph. And so that definitely struck me. But even before seeing those color images, just, you know, seeing the black and white images, um, like the civil rights movement, it was definitely, you know, having a momentum, but photography really helped make it have an international impact, you know, because seeing images of teenagers getting hosed, like it was those images that... By the police. Yes, by the police. And having police dogs attack on them. Yeah. Like that was images of that really helped 
the world see like what the hell is going on yeah. <laughs> in the United States? What's what's really going on? Yeah, I would definitely say for sure civil rights, and then also of course the seventies. <laughs> just because you want to look just, at some beautiful photos. Just, I mean, come on. So now. much yeah. style yeah, and yeah, I yeah. mean, just yeah. Those are some archives, man. Look at I always and it's video, but I bring it up like every twenty episodes. Have you ever seen Watt Stacks? Yes. So that to me is like the perfect example of like you could never without the images understand what that feeling was never. like. You know? Never. And like you there's nothing that feels like that now. But just mm-hmm. oh, the like intricacy of the fits mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. oh my God. Well, listeners go watch watch that yeah that's the thing I tell teenagers now I'm like no you <laughs> document mm-hmm. with intention right what you all do in your spaces together your styles like no you what you all are creating as teenagers teenagers of color black teenagers understand the value mm-hmm. of your creativity and how it is going to be <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it, it is definitely going to be a point of reference in the future for fashion, for everything. So I just I really encourage youth to, you know, document their existence beyond selfies because they gold. And, and right. I want them to know, like, everybody going to be looking to what you did in your teenage life for inspiration, for fashion, music, right. whatever. Right. And and so, yes, I think that's going on now. Like hmm. with these kids are doing creating getting into i mean it's just a continuum but i feel like it's so much propaganda out there with the media that is portraying our youth today in a horrible way to an extent that i haven't seen before and probably Hmm. because of you know with the advent of all the social media platforms but that that culture the same as the 70s like i think what the kids doing now is equivalent to that. Hmm. In terms of vibrancy, so, yeah. So for you that have had such a formal relationship to the to the form and the medium, mm-hmm. and then also, I, you know, what I'm hearing is you really have reverence for the historical and political significance of it. Is there any? Yeah. But I also hear you like being comfortable with the accessibility of it. Is there anything that feels like diluted yeah. in this moment now that everybody has a camera and computer in their pocket, and like there's a lot of probably technicals that are getting reduced um i used to feel that way that like oh god everybody everybody's a photographer now um but no actually i've grown from feeling that way because now i want to help people understand the power of photography as being a tool right for capturing beautiful aesthetics that's that's a mainstay but i think since everyone has access to it now, I really want to help people get that this is a powerful tool. And if you make some connections with yourself and larger systemic issues, you can really use photography to help people understand that um, because it's so accessible. One of the things that I used to hate about photography as a medium is that like most crafts it's it can be expensive depending mm-hmm. upon what you choose and when right. you choose one that's mostly technology based that could be a barrier you know but yeah. now it's not even though for people who i would say emerging photographers who have discovered an appreciation for film i come from the the generation that that's what you had to learn on so right. you know we we went through everything from film to digital and to just it being accessible now but for emerging photographers who appreciate film i love that cuz they'll be able to understand how to 
like use their camera. But since it's so expensive to even get that developed and processed and digitized, it's a barrier for people who want to get involved in photography as a serious craft. And I don't want us to kind of make it so elitist that mm-hmm. your work doesn't mean anything if it's not on mm-hmm. film. No, that's not true. But you should have an appreciation for the what it takes to to work in that in some exactly. of the uniqueness of it. Exactly. Yeah. So I just want to make sure we we keep those barriers away. Mm-hmm. Don't because everybody has access to it. What tends to happen is that people who are more serious about it try to create this little elitist thing, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't People love their elitism. They do. They really That's do. That's why we we haven't really got a, a public discourse on how to check. People love They love especially when anything becomes like widely accessible. Right. Then you want to like, you know, separate yourself from the pack. And so I don't want us to move that way with photography and if we do I am definitely going to figure out ways to remove barriers so that younger people who are interested in photography don't feel like they have to like overcome an unnecessary hurdle like I need to know film if yeah no just put your camera on manual sounds a lot of parallel like with DJing and vinyl that was exactly what I was thinking it's like you don't have to only be DJing on vinyl but at least have a working understanding of how that works and then be able to use the tools that are available now exactly yeah I feel like probably the main difference is that with photography, it's your camera. Like people forget that (laughs) understanding how to just use your camera, forget if it's digitized or film, like film forced you to learn how to use your camera. Right. So it isn't just film that's the elitist thing. It's no, it's what it forced you to do. You mm, only yeah. had 24, 36 shots and you <laughs> had Smaller to, margin of error. Yeah, and yeah. you had to understand the technical aspects of your camera. You can still do that with a digital camera. Just right. put it on manual. Right. We talk a lot about how like a media, you know, people talk about their medium. A mm. medium just means in the middle. Oh, yeah. Right. So if you're focusing exclusively on the medium, you're losing sight of the relationship between the maker and the person consuming yes. it. So I want to kind of jump to that uh, relationship. Medium talk. talk, That's our (laughs) new thing. Um, And and talk a little bit about some of the projects. Let's start with Folded Map. uh, Mm -hmm. And then I want to go a couple different directions with it from there. I know you've done a lot of talking about this project now. It's something that has, you you know, from interviews to panels to all this stuff. Before we talk about the project, let's talk about talking about the project. Is there anything that you are really tired of being asked or just something that you feel like people are misunderstanding based off of the kinds of questions that they've been asking you about the project? I would say a question that I was constantly asked that made me understand the depth of the disconnect between mm-hmm. our city's history with everything <laughs> <laughs> segregation racism discrimination and how it plays out in our everyday lives was how did you come up with the, the <laughs> I, took, I walked around <laughs> that question I got so much that's what prompted me to partner with um, the theater company Collaboration to like okay well let's just do the play because it will answer that question yeah. um, but it was that question that I was like wow we really don't understand that you know all of these statistics the, the reports about segregation and inequity that's representing us y'all like you don't have to go far to understand this the systemic impact of of 
our history of segregation and racism. Like you literally just got to think about your life. Like it's, <laughs> it's that simple. And so that's the well, question. It's, it's not that simple from those benefiting from it. Right. Because we- it is if you are made aware, mm-hmm. you know that you live in a city that is extremely diverse. Mm-hmm. And if you are occupying a space that is primarily one race, that's kind of artificial. Absolutely. No, so, of course, of course. So yeah. what I'm saying is there is a disconnect that mm-hmm. you are allowing yourself to believe or, you know, operate within. Yeah. And so I just feel like my project and other people's project can help people, yeah. like, pull out of that. So it's not that it's simple. It's just you're choosing to ignore some yeah, stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And let me cl- like be more specific in what I mean, because I grew up off 87th and Ashland, mm-hmm. right? So from my experience, it was much more likely for me to travel all the way up and down Ashland. And I, exactly. I saw it throughout my life. Like by the time I was going to college, I wanted to study that exactly. Like yes. why does the North and South Side look so different? Exactly. But on the reverse end, somebody who's up on fucking, you know, what, what in Ashland? Irvin Park yeah. or... Montrose yeah. or whatever to travel to to Garfield or to go to 79th right like that would not happen it would naturally right. in the same way of like oh we're going for a to a restaurant or oh it my wouldn't. mom's going shopping right there are, they might not live there but there are black people who go to white neighborhoods right. there are very few white people who go to black neighborhoods like it's not it's i think that's actually like a very common that's how the expressway system. About well, segreg- that's how segregation the duality right. of black people who live in Chicago, right. and so the origin story of Folded Map like focused on that. This is common knowledge for most black people in Chicago <laughs> yeah. because we have to go see outside it. of our neighborhoods yeah. for everything right. Right. that we see this, mm-hmm. um, and with seeing this, we also have a deeper connection to solutions right. and how to help people understand it and see it so yeah i just i think that that is the question that i got the most that i was like wow we really are disconnected from our personal lives being the representation of all of these reports about chicago and then believing chicago is segregated but then there's also the narrative that doesn't get told like Integration happens. Like we, right. <laughs> Chicago definitely has spaces where people gather across geographic boundaries, racial lines. Like, you know, I just didn't like the fact that Chicago was getting painted as this place where we don't even socialize with each mm-hmm, other. Mm-hmm. Like, no, nah, you're not going to wipe away my history, my friends' histories, how we grew up. We did go to other neighborhoods. There is a population of people uh, who don't. You know, there are black youth who don't and haven't gone downtown. There's white people who have never been to the South Side. But there is also a huge population of people who have been intersecting. Like, Mm -hmm. you're not going to just (laughs) tell me, you're not going to project onto me what you think Chicago is based off of our demographics and and how our city is laid out. Like, no, it was... A lot of youth in the 90s, my generation, a a lot of youth now, uh, a lot of adults who gather across racial differences and geographic boundaries and come together. And I really wanted to 
offer an opportunity for people to to know that exists. Like hmm. we don't have to like reinvent the wheel. There are very specific ways in which integration has occurred. And when I say integration, I just specifically mean the opportunity for people to choose who and where they want to hang out and 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 visit and and events that they want to participate in and and create together. Yeah. That actually does exist. And there's a lineage of it. Yes. You know, forever. <laughs> in yeah. Chicago. Yeah. So it, let's talk a little bit about the project for those who don't know. Mm-hmm. Kind of the the two part question is what's the like elevator pitch version of it when someone's like, so what's Folded Map? Which right. is kind of what I'm asking. And yeah. then also for you, when you think about this project in relationship to yourself or in relationship to the city, like what does this project mean to you at this point? Yeah. Folded Map, just basically it's an art project. It's an art project that uses portrait, video, and interviews to highlight what present day inequity and segregation looks like. And I utilize Chicago's grid map to make that point clear. So I photograph addresses that are similar on the same street and compare them to to each other, like Hmm. 6720 North Ashland, 6720 South Ashland. Then I also interview people who live on the same street in these different neighborhoods, 15, 18 miles apart, and bring them together to have a conversation about how they came to live in that neighborhood, how much their house costs, how do they describe their neighborhood, is everything that they need on a day-to-day basis accessible in their neighborhood, and record those interviews. So that is, in a nutshell, the multimedia project of Folded Map. But what it has become is essentially a tool to show the social impact of segregation and how, how, and I don't even like to use the word privilege because it's just really the basic right of people. Like they should be able to have everything that they need in their neighborhood. Right. So it's for people to have it should not be a privilege. Like even our language around it has to, to change. But hmm. it is a tool to help people understand what inequity looks like and how our history has contributed, created the communities that are struggling in Chicago and the over-resourcing of other neighborhoods. And to really show that it is our city who caters to a very specific population, young white professionals, that dictate how our city is segregated and laid out. And I want Folded Map to continue to be a tool for people who are doing the work with policy, who are doing the work with education to show not only inequity, but just it's unfair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, the beauty of the design is not just let's look at the statistics or the, the history, right? But the fact that it is uh, human-centered and interpersonal in that yeah. way. Uh, so I'm really curious as some of the patterns that have emerged from that exercise because, you know, something I've been thinking a lot about lately is that human psychology has like an unlimited capacity mm-hmm. to justify and rationalize things that benefit them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm really curious to see how people who were on the the, the, the beneficial side of segregation, yeah, right, uh, did they personally recognize their position in all of what's going Oh, yeah. On. And that's what was so beautiful about the video interviews because I was doing it just audio. But 
just the facial expressions, mm-hmm. the body language. I was like, oh, I have to get this on video because you could see people working through realizing that. An example, that's why I specifically asked, how much did your house cost? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're from the north side and you live on one of the specific blocks I identified, you're you're going to just be like, oh, okay, well, I can just say my house was like 400000 You know, mm-hmm. like this, that's what it is. But when you hear someone who lives literally on the same street as you, right. just on the south side, and you hear the story of how this building, how they came to live in this building, or if that building was in their family, right. um, and the value of it being 77000 now, it's a moment where you can mm-hmm. see something going on. Some of them laugh through the awkwardness. <laughs> Some were just like shocked, you know, but it was definitely a moment to show that we're all operating in the system and there's a clear group of people who are benefiting and did not realize to the extent in which Hmm. it was unfair, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to create a space where people moved beyond guilt or feeling like a victim and, and realized that these are two individuals who are coming together to understand how our city's history of discrimination and segregation brought them to have these different lived experiences, Mm -hmm. even though they want the same thing. And quite frankly, probably would have been cool neighbors, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted the conversation to shift from, from people feeling like a victim and, and guilty to, who do we hold accountable for this? Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask. Sorry to cut you off. No, go ahead. The amount of massaging through white guilt that I could imagine was in some of these interviews seems like kind of an annoying part of the process. It wasn't massaging. Yeah, it wasn't massaging at all. It was... (laughs) It wasn't. I guess that's one way to do it, yeah. I mean, so this this is the thing. Unless it's one of them like... Extreme massages where you basically see they ass. No, they came to <laughs> never punched a mic before. But you just you broke it. You broke the little what you call it. What's this thing called? The little screen. The little screen. These were all people who now leave it in. Don't mark it. It was worth it for the joke. <laughs> for the for the effect. Yeah. These are people who self-selected to uh, be uh, in this project. So they That's had right. a sensitivity and vulnerability and interest right. to go deeper into learning something. And so I had to respect that space, yeah. you know, because black people in Chicago aren't the only ones impacted by segregation. I personally believe that we're all psychologically impacted because right. of the missed opportunities. And so I wanted to give space for people to possibly connect with each other to reveal that this is not our fault. Just to be direct, you know, there are white people in Chicago who don't know how to help mm-hmm. like this because mm-hmm. it's such a systemic it's institutional. It is. Yeah, yeah. And once you realize you're on the the benefiting side, still what do you do? And mm-hmm. so I wanted the project to to serve as an opportunity not only for those who feel that way to say it's just connect with people. Yeah. Just like visit people. And then also for um residents of Inglewood to feel validated and in knowing, yeah, you know, 
the city has created this struggle uh, that my family has had to go through. And I appreciate you listening mm-hmm. as someone who did not know. Mm-hmm. And so it also leads into my different ideology on gentrification <laughs> um, because I wanted all the residents involved for them to feel reassured that the goal of this project isn't to place blame. It is to show that our city has allowed this to happen. Our elected officials has allowed this to happen. And as a result, it has created this, perpetuated this divide that I truly feel doesn't reflect how we want to interact in this city. Mm -hmm. Right. And we as residents have barriers that we have to overcome just to even connect with people that we could get along with and possibly even want to live around just because of our city's history. And that's not fair. Even referring to people who come into a neighborhood and and, and gentrify it, right? Referring to them as gentrifiers. Like, okay, that's all cool to, to create a conversation. But the truth of the matter is it's not their fault that our city specifically allows resources to follow that population. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not their fault. It's their responsibility to recognize that their presence can completely change a neighborhood. But overall, it's the city's fault. They need to create incentives and utilize all the programs, TIFs, to redirect funding into certain neighborhoods and not just allow capitalism right. to dictate how our city is going to look. Perpetuate the Yeah, because it's going to perpetuate not only a divide just within the city, but even racially, like... No, we we can't have <laughs> white people feeling bad because they moving into or young white people because they moving into a neighborhood that they actually that's all they could afford to. <laughs> right. You know, like honestly and truly, yeah. you know, and it's and it's been like artists mm-hmm. uh, across all racial lines that have created a lot of these communities that have just eventually Right. Become. And that's the developer move, yeah. right? Is you f- there are these particular, like you were saying, populations yeah. that, that that is what is resource. That's, that's an economic driver. Yeah. And right. so I just want us to move beyond the gentrification conversation in a different way. Yeah. Like, yeah. let's just come together. Like, y'all feel bad. Y'all moving in here and y'all, you know, y'all can't help that everything y'all won't end up popping up in the neighborhood. And then the people that live there mad because, you know, like if we stay in that space. We're really like letting the city off. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a really important distinction that I think we've talked a lot about a lot, like personally off the air a little bit on the show mm-hmm. is that, that we need to refine that language. Yeah. And like gentrification is a is a process and a system. And I think too often, like, you know, when we talk about racism, we focus on racist instead of racism. I think gentrification as a yeah. politically economic phenomenon is similar you know it is not the renters that are the gentrifiers they are yeah. the, the, the beneficiaries it is definitely the elected officials and the, the our you know political representation mm-hmm. but then also the organizers of capital right is it is the developers it is the yes. the, the, the property owner so if you own a block or you own a building and you are setting the prices that is different than somebody who is re- taking the prices exactly and to the point of accountability i think that is an important distinction we have to make but i do also want to center you back mm-hmm. in this project yeah uh <laughs> because uh i i hear you approaching it artistically and it's mm-hmm. definitely profound and beautiful but i think a true artist or that's that's weighted language now leave it in there i'll, I'll, I'm I'll not take that mistake i see his reflects marks in the process yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is new i didn't uh, use to mark it up as uh-huh, but i love watching it yeah, yeah. Um, 
often I think the the goal of artistry is to center the audience and to center the subject, right? To center the portrait, mm-hmm. to to show, mm-hmm. uh, and to like remove yourself and and to like quell our egos. Yeah. Uh, but this is more than just an artistic project. It also is organizing work and deeply political work. Yeah. Uh, so I would like to ground back to you and like what you learned from it. And I heard you ask the question of like, who do we hold accountable? Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is so significant because housing, our housing system, if you want to point to one thing, it is the center of American white supremacy, anti-blackness, and yeah. how segregation has been impacted. Yeah. Um, impactful, I should say. What did you learn about the housing system? What did, what did it change in your understanding from going through this work? I would say I learned how deep and difficult one solution is going to be. <laughs> um, That's real. Yeah. And I I applaud the housing policy experts who are coming up with different ways in which, because that is, that is above me. <laughs> were, there, were there people doing that type of research that you looked to or that oh, impressed you? Yes, several people. Um, just one off the top was, of course, Metropolitan Planning Council mm-hmm. and Marissa Novara, who's now on the transition team for our new mayor, highlighting not only just housing, but how because of capitalism, people are taking advantage of rental markets, right. developing everything that just perpetuates this segregation that I feel isn't reflective of how we want to operate. But yeah, I just learned that it's so convoluted and it seems hopeless sometimes because it will require capital. It will require a direct investment in under-resourced neighborhoods, specifically with housing, you know, You have to develop something there and you have to offer if you want to create higher home ownership in the neighborhoods that have lost homeowners, they have to have money to renovate. Like that's the major barrier right there. Like I could afford to probably purchase a home in Inglewood, but it will probably need work because it's been abandoned, you know, Mm -hmm. and so where do I go for that money? Mm -hmm. You know, like I have to be in a certain financial bracket to be able to even get access to renovation Mm -hmm. (laughs) resources. Mm -hmm. And so it's just so many layers. And then even with renting, we'd seriously have to, I'm just going to use the word attack, a greedy landlord to increase the market rate, the rental market rate in, um, lower income black neighborhoods so that they can use and get section eight dollars the amount of it because once you have a building that has that rental cap for section eight let's say it's twelve hundred dollars for however many bedrooms in inglewood then that means a market rate renter has to pay twelve hundred dollars and it's not worth $1,200 $1,200 when you live in That's a neighborhood. It's a so it's using the, using the federal yes. guidelines as a way to, to artificially inflate how much market exactly. rent is have to pay. So huh. even hmm. that is about a that. whole other thing, yes. which, which also creates a barrier for people who would want to rent in neighborhoods like Inglewood because now they can't because they're like, why would I pay $1,200 to yeah. live in Inglewood when like, why? Yeah. Just a market rate renter. So mm. it's just so many. Yeah. It's multifaceted. We're talking about capitalism here. It's it, capitalism. Mm, mm, it I, is. Because <laughs> no, it is, it's, and it's, it's it, it. And capitalism, in order for it to exist, uh, we have to accept that yeah. it was built off of 
not off of racism, but racism and capitalism are inherently into. I mean, I think, you know, a, a language that people credit to Cedric Robinson and, and Robin Kelly has like expanded this idea of racial capitalism mm-hmm. is that racism and white supremacy and capitalism are inseparable in their yeah. origin and in their function. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so calling it one or the other is exactly. always improper. And like, you know, talk about the the connection of the two. And hearing that, it's something I just saw. There's that Dirty Money series on Netflix. Oh, yeah. And there was one episode talking about um the, the medical industry. Mm. And like what I hear oh. you saying, that's something that I've really been trying to study and figure out how to articulate is it's about price setting, right? Like yes. who has the power to name the price? Because huh. it's, it's not the buyer or the seller, right? Like it is the, the, the power broker. Because yeah. like if you think of Walmart, if you go into Walmart, you have to take their price. But if Walmart wants to go buy a million chickens, they get to say to the to the farmer, this is this how is much, much chicken the chicken costs, means, right? Yeah. And so on both ends, yeah. they are the price setter. So similarly, the way the insurance, the uh, medical industry or the, the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. is gaming the insurance market. Mm-hmm. And so because they're co-pays or because it's collectivized, they'll raise, you know, an HIV pill or they'll raise yeah. a pill for, for Wilson's disease and like redistribute that like basically yeah. – stealing yeah. right? but because the way that the state system works exactly it, it, it is incentivizing that type of exactly the incentives and who creates the incentives that are like elected officials and so stuff. Yeah. if you have full executive power and the city and the country was a video game and you could wipe away and start over or you could continue within the, the what would what would you do What's i heard you move? say that one thing won't work but we need a multitude of solutions yeah. you have all the power let's 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 imagine let's uh let's yeah. solve housing segregation in 35 seconds yeah, go <laughs> um i would renovate a lot of the beautiful buildings on the on chicago south and west side and i will create some kind of program for lower income home buyers i mean not even lower income like for me, like my income level, <laughs> to is low enough, right? Exactly. To, low enough income to, to buy them, and then also have, um, you know, affordable rent for people. And I think once you do that, that will ultimately change the landscape of different neighborhoods. And then I'll make sure there's a lot of available art centers. In these neighborhoods. Yeah. And once you have art centers and some form of like entertainment, then you will see who want to hang out with each other, who wants to live around each other. And I just think Chicago has not had hmm. an opportunity for us to even see how a diverse neighborhood could get created because we've put so many things in the way of people connecting and giving people incentives to stay removed from people so i would want to create neighborhoods like that and then see who gets attracted to it like Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. in our mixed arts spaces like the spaces that are mixed are at this point corporatized right so you go to concord yeah there's people from all over the city there for a concert but like they had to get patted down at the door and the tickets cost a certain amount and that went to live nation it's like they're like you were saying there is a lineage of investive yeah community art space exactly those exist and people be coming out you know and just giving them an opportunity to hang and socialize with each other so it might also change where they will want to live you know so Mm -hmm. i would definitely just 
most immediately stop overinvestment in specific neighborhoods and just spread some of that out to the south and the west sides of Chicago yeah. and then just like see. Yeah. How, how about you, Kiss? If it, if it was your video game, what, what would you add to those solutions? Huh. Let's, let's keep building. We're gonna figure it out. I know we gonna stop. The three of us. So the you're welcome, everybody. <laughs> the two, like, and this isn't like a building. It's a like we're trying to do a little bit of harm reduction. Yeah. So other cities have mechanisms in place that put some sort of check on development, right? Whether mm-hmm. that's allowing rent control, yes. which is crazy that Chicago has no rent control. Like, that has been banned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is, yeah, there is a ban yeah. on controlling yeah. the rent. So the, the fight now isn't even to get rent control. It's to end the ban on rent, <laughs> right. rent control. To then get it. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, my God. So that's one. Two, there are just, like, rent tenants' rights things that other cities oh, have yeah. that Chicago mm-hmm. doesn't have. For instance, mm-hmm. like, in New York, there's a limit on how much a landlord can raise the rent in one month mm, or in yes. one lease. So if you're month to month, it's each month. But if mm-hmm. you have an, an annual lease, like you can only raise it. It's like 15 to 20 percent over the course of one year yeah. or one here. If you're month to month and your landlord decides I'm going to raise your rent times three. Yeah. The only recourse you have is that you have a month to come up with that money. Mm-hmm. But that's not you know, feasible. If they decide you've been paying $900 a month and now it's going to cost $2,500 because they want you out. You have no legal recourse there. So that's something that I would put just as like a basic protection. Mm -hmm. And and then I think like the the macro macro of what we've been talking about that I don't have a solution for, but I think is the most important piece is like if you take this logic of inequity and an unequal investment and you Mm -hmm. extend it to like its logical end, Mm -hmm. what you get is what we've seen, which is black people being pushed out of the city. Mm -hmm. And I think there has to be at minimum, like an acknowledgement that like we're not actually just talking about segregation. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is like increased pushing farther and farther and farther and farther to the margins until there's no room left at all. It's ethnic yeah. cleansing. Right. It, yeah. like, this is an extension of that. And, yeah. you know, think about how different your project would have looked 20 years earlier. So many of those, you know, addresses that yeah. there isn't someone living at now, yeah. even if the house was fucked up or, they were, you know, they didn't own or they were being extracted from, there was somebody living there. Yeah. And, you know, you fast forward 10 years in the future, mm-hmm. what's going to happen when you try to match, you know, 3,500 North yeah. or 5,500 North with 5,500 South and there's nobody at 5,500 South? No, that's you know? tr- that's definitely true. The black population in Chicago is, you know, it is... It's dropped like 25%. It's dropped. And so seeing a different display Placement. And the Latino population in Chicago, they're always like migrating to all over the city because they're getting pushed out. And right. so black neighborhoods recognize that because oftentimes they come into mm-hmm. traditionally black neighborhoods. Like right now in West Inglewood, we've noticed an influx of Latino families. And we noticed that as soon as kind of like Pilsen right. started yeah. to feel. So it's just so unfair. And it definitely is displacement of black Chicagoans and also forcing a Latino population in Chicago to to have to move out of neighborhoods that they've invested so much in, has so much history with. And it's just, those are the two primary groups that have always in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And don't have, in many cases, and it's a little different, but you know, it's one thing to be pushed out of your neighborhood and if you own your home and then you can cash out at least something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's another thing when you've been structurally denied home ownership. Oh, yeah. And you've been renting for 30 years or you've been on a rent to own or contract buying the way yeah, it's, it it's worked. And then to lose, it's like, 
you know, you don't even, you don't even get the payout. That's like lit- <laughs> no, literal economic equity. Yeah. Well, yeah, because one of the Map twins, um, her father purchased the building that she grew up in in Inglewood in 1974 mm. um, for, I believe she said like thirty thousand dollars. In 2019 dollars, that's like 120 something thousand, mm. right? But the current value is 77. Mm. So you, they lost money, mm. right? And yeah. they were the ones who were and, able to own. And that doesn't <laughs> right. happen anywhere in exactly. the American economy. It's, yeah. Damon, what do you think? Damon, what do you think? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you, so glad you asked. <laughs> we wanted to know. <laughs> um, I was going to ask. Yeah, no, I just wanted to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it, it is. It, we have to go back to like the fundamentals of economic exchange and subvert some of that. So I think taking away monetary purchasing from mm-hmm. it and it needs to really be looked at as a as tangible reparation models mm-hmm. of however the mechanism is right whether it is through government or through a corporate entity or nonprofit mm-hmm. facilitated or we create a new structure literally giving people ownership without paying right so the whole like yeah. we yeah. need an investment like no there are houses that are there that is there is only a piece of paper yeah. that says someone else owns it we need to claim and reclaim that. So, right, basically like taking it back to the idea of like land reform, of right. yeah. one questioning the, the, the fundamental idea, is it humane for someone to own someone else's home if they are not there? Yeah. If that is humane or if that is possible, what are the fetters where someone who can benefit from taking away someone's shelter does mm-hmm. not have the power to do so? Yeah. Right. Shelter is a human need for life. It is. And if someone else can profit from taking your shelter, that in itself is an inhumane design. And so all of the homes that are vacant, someone has ownership and responsibility from it. If they're being negligent, especially, it should be revoked and it should be redistributed and viewed as reparation, especially if you go you know, to the, the great ta Coates article about mm-hmm. contract leasing. My next question I wanted to get to uh, is how did the, the housing crash come up in terms of how the, oh, yeah. this inequity mm. has been expanded over the last... Because, you know, it has always existed, but yeah. we, we think about the 50s and 60s, but 2008 was the largest revoking of yeah. black wealth in American history. Yeah. So, yeah, basically just giving people houses because that's how the suburbs were created. It was well, yeah. interest-free loans. Cops now get free loans to to, to have property ownership. Yeah, they ownership. gave There's plenty of models benefits and incentives of for giving people houses. white families to move to, like, I mean... They took it, like, because it made sense. Like, I would have too. Um, oh, a free house? Yeah, sure. Yeah, like, that sounds great. Well, go. I'm so qualified right. for this. Pre-qualified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I moved. Yeah, that was probably the suburbanization yeah. was the height of the use golly. of golly. Golly, gee. Yeah. <laughs> It's a lot of gallies get thrown around. Uh, oh my god! Um, <laughs> but yeah, how did how does how does that housing how crisis starts? I've never heard that one. Yeah, that's a good one. But the housing crisis, I think, well, just to use uh, my neighborhood for an example, traditionally on the south side. Block clubs used to be the thing. The signs are still there. Not even on the south side. (laughs) On south side and west side in black communities, that is just how you organized your block and came to a community agreement on this what we are not going to tolerate on our little block. Mm -hmm. And then you would have the celebratory things. You have your block parties and you could go visit everybody on a block party, see how they got down. (laughs) But... 2008, like the the last little that was left of Hmm. like block clubs... That just removed mm. so many, like wiped out so many like stronghold block clubs mm. um, and just using Inglewood as an example to the point that 
um, people in my generation who lived in Inglewood, um, and I'm going to refer to Aisha Butler, the lead co-founder of Resident Association of Greater Inglewood. Which we have to get to. Yeah, that is why she wanted to start that association because block clubs were also a huge organizing force. Right. Mm. And it enabled residents to come together as residents across their aldermatic wards that they lived in. Right. And so for the housing crash to like dismantle the last leg of block clubs, it was like, oh man, we, okay, we lost an organizing force mm. now. Like yeah. now shit is real. Like, How, how are they are instituted? Are they like formally... You have to like submit to the city, or is it just something informal? I don't know the formal process because I don't. I, Can you just be a block club, or no? You have to. I think there is a process. I don't know it, but because that's um, local government, right there. Right. Yeah, that's hyper hyper yeah. local, and so we realize that man, it's just like stretches of blocks that aren't like active anymore because <laughs> of the housing crash. So you know, our response to that was create resident association yeah. of greater Inglewood. So that we could talk forever and there I like I want to talk about resident association and I want to talk about your artistry and I want to also be a little mindful of time. <laughs> I was like, um, oh, I have a meeting. meeting. How much time do you have? Let, have let's do this sit. democratically. I know. I figure out how much I don't even want to tell you cuz cuz I'm I'm basically going to be late to the next okay. meeting. I'm sorry Vanessa. Oh, damn. I'm sorry Vanessa. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa, thank you for listening and we apologize. I know. Do you, I know. Do, you do you fib about your lateness? Do you be like I, I was doing something else? I don't. I just okay. be, it's gonna take me twenty two minutes to get okay. there. I mean, she doesn't mind if I'm like fifteen. minutes. Okay. So basically, I have like uh, fifteen minutes. We got Perfect. fifteen minutes. Perfect. All right, let's stay with the organization, and then I want to just talk a little bit about the artistry. But let me see if I can actually just put them together. Ooh. Yeah. So, like we've been talking about, this deep understanding of place and people's relationship to their block, to yeah. their neighborhood, to their city that you are encouraging people to have. Mm-hmm. that I think shows up in both the way you're talking about the organizing work and your artistic projects beyond Folded Map also. Where does that kind of intimate relationship with place come from for you? Uh, it comes from what I encourage people to think about as a participant in Folded Map, which is possibly why it's an appealing little experience, is how did you come to live where you live? Hmm. So what's the story for for you? So for me, the answer is simply my grandmother. (laughs) Shout out to grandma. Yeah. yeah, Like I view myself as her legacy. Mm. (laughs) What's her name? Marilyn G. Tenney. Shout out. That's a good ass grandma. That's a grandma name name right there. Oh, yeah. Marilyn G. (laughs) That's a legacy starter. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because of her vision and her wanting more for herself, she came to Chicago. (laughs) And she saved her money for (laughs) seven years to purchase the building that I grew up in on the block 62nd and Loomis in Inglewood. And it was that block that I moved away from a couple times because my mom wanted to go live up north. But, you know, that was also the block that we returned to. So and then that was the block that I lived on when I started high school. So me knowing her history and, and what made her come to Chicago deeply guides my work and is ultimately an homage to her because (laughs) I was little and she would babysit me when my mom was going to work. And I clearly remember going to Acorn housing meetings Mm -hmm. in Inglewood. I did Mm -hmm. not know what that was at the time, obviously. Mm -hmm. 
But as I started doing work, I was like, oh, so this organization used to be Acorn. Oh, my gosh. My, my grandmother used to drag me to these. Like, oh, I had to go to meetings then? <laughs> right. Exactly. So, What's the name of it? Wait. It was Acorn. And now it's Action now, I think. Okay. Right, right, right. Yeah. I was going to say Rage isn't Acorn. No. no. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Acorn. Yeah. They, they, they're Action now, I think. But, but, but they, they the got housing. It was a- the, Acorn got a lot of like scrutiny under the, the 08 Obama election, mm-hmm. right? I be- was, yes, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. But that and Jeremy right where they're like he's, he's a, a socialist terrorist a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah right but this when she was involved this was like in the 80s but at its core it was for people who yeah. wanted to expand housing opportunities and also help people who own homes like maintain them and so just her I mean because she was also an artist and then I think about how you know each generation to like move your family forward there's a deep sacrifice at some point. And hmm. I recognize that for my grandmother, it was her artistry. She was not able to pursue being an artist. because What did she make? She was a singer and a painter. Hmm. Me being able to be an artist is kind of her dream realized. Yeah. And, and so that is what I carry with me. That is why I'm so committed to my space and neighborhood of Inglewood. I, I grew up there and I also lived in other neighborhoods. I never, I grew up never thinking, oh, I have to stay in Inglewood. I was like, I can stay wherever I want in Chicago because it's my city. Right. But becoming an adult, realizing, oh, no, I can't. I literally can't afford to stay anywhere. Yeah, Zillow's but, a real wake up call. <laughs> but the neighborhood I grew up in. Right. So it was that experience that helped me understand kind of the the process that my grandmother had to go through to make the steps forward for our family. Yeah. I'm thinking about you talking about at the beginning what it took for you to really own the title of artist. And you saying that, you know, the sacrifice that she made was not pursuing that and now you being able to do that is a bit of a reclamation, it sounds like. Yes. But it also took you a long time to get to the point where you were willing to call yourself that. Do you think that that owning that inheritance was a challenge to account for? That's a leading question. Yeah. But, you know, if you feel like, oh, my God, she gave this up so I could do it, that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself as an as a creator. It is if you view it that way. Once I accepted that as, like, my calling and my title, I really, truly felt like that was the approval. This is your purpose for this point in your life. And I felt like my grandmother um, intended that to be. Hmm. So it's beautiful. I, I have one last one. I wish we could have you forever. <laughs> I, I, I probably could. I I, I, you are so good. I'm oh, like, thank you. I've not talked this long. Oh, about. great. I could probably do another hour of this <laughs> easily. But so, but since we don't have that. Sorry, what was, what was Vanessa? the person you're Vanessa, Vanessa that we're that playing right now? Oh, yes, Vanessa. So, we're sorry, Vanessa. This is our fault. <laughs> uh, so so I, I appreciated the trade off because I think centering you is much more important than something that is beyond you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really would have loved to get more of the history and like the the story of rage because it is it is really an important space in the city. Oh, so I'll, yeah. I'll try to get it with one question. Yeah. How is that space or that organization shaping your dreams for a better world? Uh, well, <laughs> what rage is, well, how it started is ultimately the solution to a lot of things. It was literally people with a deep connection to a certain space, neighborhood, who wanted better for it and and questioned 
how can we get better for it? Mm-hmm. Um, and we just started meeting. The concept of it was the idea of lead co-founder Asia Butler, who who's my sister friend. But we met because someone introduced us and said, you all need to meet each other because y'all were both live in Inglewood and y'all both doing stuff. Um, Someone set up a play date. <laughs> basically. And so when I met her and the other co-founders, it was like finding your tribe, but in your neighborhood. Yeah. And really the power of what people who are passionate, committed, and concerned about not only the betterment of their lives, but the community, what what you can accomplish or or how you can move the needle forward. So that's what rage is to me. We have a lot of now conventional, but it was unconventional then uh, <laughs> ways of 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 getting the community together. The conventions caught up. <laughs> really honestly, yeah. honestly and truly with the billboard project being one of them. Um but yeah, that's what it represents to me. It just represents an example of when community comes together, when you make an effort to know people that you live around and share space with them, what you all can do and, and, and the momentum you all can create as an inspiration to other neighborhoods that are similar to it, to just offer opportunity for people to to get together, really, yeah. to get together, whether it's to mobilize to to just have fun to you know organize to protest or to do whatever it is it all comes down to you have to connect and and come together Hmm. as individuals as residents and so our bi-monthly Inglewood Village meetings are a reminder of that because that's the place in which we consistently gather throughout the year to share information. So that's what rage is to me. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I have so many community members and rage members who valued art, that was the beauty in and of itself. Cause I was doing my photography like to document all of the stuff we were doing with rage, but I never told them that I thought I was an artist or whatever, Mm. (laughs) but they understood the value of it. And so for me, it showed me the, the power of your community uplifting you Mm because I would not have taken this title for myself. I just still probably would have been like doing street photography and create, putting it on my hard drives and Mm -hmm. not putting it nowhere, Mm -hmm. maybe on Facebook every Mm -hmm. once in a while. But now you're city thinking. Yeah. You know, they showed me how they felt about my work. Hmm. So you did get the equivalent of the guy like biking by me going, oh, this artist over there. I did. I did. (laughs) They just told me. They was like, girl, (laughs) do your thing. Well, I know we couldn't get to all the all the projects, but just from, you know, the the cursory work that I did looking on your website. Y'all, go check out the things that you have made. They are so beautiful. We were looking at the the video from the event that you did at, what was it, Woods? What was the school? Oh, my old grammar school. Yeah, with the projection. And it was just like... So often when people like the the grant language of like revitalizing space and all it like gets yeah. very dear and precious and inaccessible. And I just saw that and it was like, oh, this, oh, this is what is it's it. supposed to feel like. Yeah. So yeah. And, um, and that was also with Roy Kinsey, yeah. which it was important. Me and him wanted because our work pays, you know homage to both of our grandmothers and we really wanted to do this Hmm. link up together to represent also across geographic lines west side and south side like 
we do recognize, and when I say we, Inglewood, Southside, recognize almost kind of like the erasure of the West Side. And it's because of it smaller geographically, right. but the history is the same and we mm-hmm. are connected to them. And mm-hmm. so really utilizing our platform to share space with them, to amplify their existence and what they're going through. Because it's very, it's the same, but it's even more stark yeah, on the West severe. Side because they're only like three to four miles away from the overly resourced neighborhoods yeah. and that yeah. has a completely different feel so and they got the overly resourced on the other side too you got, oh, yeah. they got oak park and those yeah. birds oh yeah they so really from both sides yeah. oh yes and yeah. and it creates a different culture and a different experience and so hmm. um woods academy that event was to kind of reconcile that and to hmm. show like <laughs> yeah. west siders we're with you um <laughs> some solidarity there yeah and actually a group of um West Side residents created their own resident association because they hmm. they were inspired by rage and it's called Raw. Uh, Resident Association of the West Side. Gotta love a, uh, a quality acronym. Yes. <laughs> on, on the acronym note. Yep, so ours is <laughs> Rage and theirs is Raw. Oh, so. that's pretty good. Super Raw. Yeah. All, all puns intended. So we definitely, we definitely yeah. support yeah. the efforts in their work. As a matter of fact, the photographer that I'm meeting with, Vanessa, um, she's, Shout out to Vanessa. Sorry, again, <laughs> she's from the West Side and she's actually going to be working with me to photograph the addresses for the next iteration of Folded hmm. Map, oh, great, which great, includes great. the West Side, because, you know, not only could I leave out half of the city on a project that's about equity, <laughs> but my West Side friends was like, so you just not going to uh-huh. do <laughs> right. the and West then, And then what happens when you float the map the other way, right? Because yeah, then so, that's going into, like, if you're talking about Madison and Monroe, and all, that goes to downtown. True, but that is not the way that's that not I'm the way folding. You're do it. Yeah, okay. so the you got way some that origami I'm, going on here. <laughs> kind of, sorta. I'm really. It's also an educational opportunity for people to understand that it's still actually a north-south divide. Hmm. Even within the West Side. Yes. Yeah. Um. And so the fold is still going to be north-south, but it's you know who shares the same hundred west. So if you think about it, neighborhood-wise, Albany Park, Logan Square, yeah. Humboldt Park, Garfield Park, like it's. Still a north-south divide. It's just more condensed. And Mm -hmm. um, sadly, you know, like I was saying, three to four miles apart. Whereas the north and south, you could easily say it's too far. Right, right, right. You know, and you see a gradient of change of of the divestment. Mm -hmm. But the west side. But the new Logan Square to Lawndale. That's like like eight minutes. It's a six. Yeah. That's like, that's insane. Shit, during Freedom Square, it was a 15 minute bus ride on the same longitude from my house to, you know, to Logan Square. So um, in order for me to definitely uplift not only West Side artists, but also really wanted to have a photographer who has a connection to yep. the West Side. I mean, I do too, but um, she's going to photograph some of the addresses mm. for for that. Well, yeah. I look forward to seeing what it what it turns into. And mostly yeah. just, it's so wonderful to see the way you're, again, like connecting the whole to the particular and then using the tools that you have to try to like show the way those connect. So thank you for your work and also just thank you for coming through and kicking it with us. Oh, I had so much fun. Yeah, of course. It was beautiful. so easy this to talk beautiful. to y'all. You want to do a real quick checkout? I'm sorry, Vanessa, yeah, yeah. real quick. What, like one word, I'm one sentence. What's something from this that stuck with you or just how are you feeling right now? inspired mm-hmm. you know just even seeing you two when people think about chicago and segregation they literally think you know a black dude and a white dude 
can't be cool, can't be on the same, you know, can't yeah. have the same values. Like mm. people actually think that because Look of how, us. yeah, <laughs> but because of how divided we are, right, you know, right, and they're right. like, oh God, you know, but no, there are spaces and people who, who do share the same values across racial lines yeah. and that want the better for each other. Hmm. And so this to me is just a reminder of, the work that I want to continue to do. Yeah. And it's not about saying, because, uh, oh, another thing that people have asked is like, are you saying integration is the only answer to, I was like, no, 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 no. Integration is not the answer to our issues. However, in Chicago, we do not have a neighborhood that is truly diverse, reflective of all of the nationalities and racial demographic of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Hmm. People should be able to live around whoever it is they want. If you want to live in a neighborhood, you know, where people look like you, have the same values as you, then that's fine. That shouldn't be dangerous. Right. That's, mm -hmm. that's fine. But also for people who do want to live around different people or have a diverse neighborhood, they should have that option. And for a city who has that demographic to not have that as an option. Mm -hmm. I'm not including Hyde Park. I'm not including Rogers Park. Right. That's, <laughs> that's the inequity. Outliers on right. the graph. Yeah, that's that's the inequity. That's and again, so, like you said, everybody loses from that. Everybody. Right. And it's the difference between integration and desegregation. Right? Exactly. Like integration might not be the solution, but segregation is a problem. Exactly. Uh, integration should be an option. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I, got some, I got some friends I want to live around. Like if we could create our own little neighborhood what yeah. find, find some cool ramen noodles somewhere yeah. um, for, for me my, my, my check out when I think about the folded map project and even hearing you describe it the space to humanize the oppression yeah. right like it is not foreign it's not alien it is something that has evolved within our humanity mm -hmm. and for those of us who have been traumatized or have suffered the, the wounds of oppression it is really hard historically to, to humanize those who are benefiting from it and mm -hmm. are willfully or happen to be ignorant mm -hmm. to the impact of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so figuring out ways and tools and methods and creative outlets to find that common humanity that does not rationalize or justify someone's mm -hmm. position that is harmful is, <laughs> is, a, is, is something I'm working to do amongst all of the spectrums of, yeah. that are intersecting. Uh, but I think that this conversation and your work is a real good example of that. Thank yeah. you. Can you write my artist statement? <laughs> <laughs> I can say it. <laughs> I'm going to record yeah, you yeah, doing yeah. it. I can talk don't, your artist Don't statement. email David for it. You're not getting a response back. <laughs> um, mine is just thinking about like being given permission by your people to call yourself an artist. Ah. And I love that I idea of yeah. like, you were doing it because you felt it should be done and it wasn't even for anyone else. But them seeing it and being like, oh, this this should be seen and it is being seen. We see you mm -hmm. now own that and yeah. stand on that. I think that's like a really solid foundation on which to make things from. Thank you. Where can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? They can go to my website, which is tonikaj.com, T-O-N is a Nancy, I-K-A-J.com. Um, also, foldedmapproject.com. And then I'm on all social media platforms, Tonika J on Instagram, Tonika GJ on Twitter, Tonika Lewis Johnson on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. 
We didn't even say it up top, but congrats on the the Field Foundation oh leaders of the new Chicago. I'm still stunned. It's a hell of a list of people, some of which we've had up on the show. But yeah, we've been meaning to get you up here for now. But then seeing that, I was like, oh, of course, we got to circle back. So oh, thank, thank you. you so much for coming through. Thank you for having me. I really yeah. enjoyed this. We appreciate you. We'll be back next week with another person reshaping the culture of Chicago for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Hey, Dame. What's up, Kiss? I want you to meet my friend Miriam here. Hey, Miriam. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Miriam is my oldest friend in the world. The whole world. And she is a devoted podcast listener. Are you? I am. Oh, well, that's love. I don't even just, I don't mean our podcast. I just mean podcasts in general. Okay. I love podcasts. How, how do you usually find your podcast? What do you listen to them on? <sighs> the iTunes mm. app. Yeah, I know. Very basic. You're not thrilled with it? It isn't the best. Well, the good news is we actually have a recommendation for you. Oh, yeah? Well, Ergo is sponsored by Overcast. It's an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Man, it's for the people. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it free in the App Store where you get all the other things. That yeah. You, you going to check it out? Sounds amazing. Cool. We won you over. Look how effective this ad is. Been. <sighs> yeah. Pay, pay us more money, folks. <laughs> that's, that's advertising in action. You see? Works. <laughs> See, that's how good we are at selling things. We're doing this. Hey, yo, Harold, hit me up, man. I am an advocate and I can market your stuff because look how great we just marketed Overcast. We just gave an ad for them and an ad for us. I think it's time to get the fuck out of here. Let's do it.